Hello everyone and welcome to the March 31st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our weekly news. State Senator Leland Yee has been indicted for public corruption as part of another major FBI operation. Yee represents San Francisco and a portion of San Mateo County. When elected in 2006, he was the first Chinese-American ever elected to the state Senate. Yee was an assemblyman from 2002 to 2006, a San Francisco supervisor from 1997 to 2002, and has been a member and president of the San Francisco Unified School District Board. Hundreds of law enforcement officers were involved in the takedown. He was taken into San Francisco's federal building wearing handcuffs while FBI agents and local police served arrest and search warrants throughout the Bay Area. Yee's indictment likely ruins his candidacy for Secretary of State and threatens Democrats' ability to restore the state Senate supermajority. Yee is the state's third Democratic legislature recently tied to corruption allegations. In February, State Senator Ron Calderon surrendered to authorities after being indicted on bribery charges over proposed workers' compensation law and Pacific Hospital in Long Beach. In January, Assemblyman Roderick Wright was convicted of voter fraud and perjury stemming from a 2010 indictment. A former Rancho Cucamonga attorney who once handled some of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority's toughest legal cases was convicted of stealing nearly $2 million from the transit agency by submitting phony invoices and pocketing settlement money. James Vincent Rice, who also was convicted of stealing more than $1 million from other clients, pleaded no contest to two felony counts of grand theft. Rice defended the MTA in multi-million dollar injury lawsuits involving rail and bus passengers for 15 years until officials realized he was defrauding the agency. Rice made the plea as part of a deal in which prosecutors agreed to drop nine other felony counts of theft, forgery, and fraud. He is set to be sentenced on March 26th, and the court is expected to require that he pay more than $3 million in restitution and serve a decade in prison. Rice created fraudulent documents that led the MTA to write checks that he ultimately kept for himself instead of paying plaintiffs who sued the agency. According to an MPA MTA lawsuit filed against Rice's law firm in January for malpractice, forgery, and negligence, Rice cost the agency as much as $2.5 million. In one incident in 2011, Rice allegedly told the MTA that he had negotiated a $2.5 million jury award down to about $1.8 million. But when the MTA authorized the settlement, Rice kept the money. Rice then filed an appeal delaying the case. The MTA eventually resolved the case by paying $2.5 million. The suit alleges Rice also submitted numerous falsified invoices totaling at least $754,000. Rice was disbarred on March 16, 2013, after a state bar court judge called his case an illustration of the disciplinary consequences of dishonesty. The state bar case 
found a 10-year pattern of deception in order to cover up mismanagement of his clients' cases or for his personal economic gain. And there was no hint of remorse. Rice has refused to acknowledge his misconduct despite overwhelming evidence of his dishonesty and the harm he caused to his clients. A Southern California man who ran a durable medical equipment supply company has been found guilty by federal jury in Los Angeles for his role in a $1.5 million Medicare fraud scheme. 36-year-old Vahi Tasmazian of Glendale was found guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud, six counts of health care fraud, and six counts of aggravated identity theft. Sentencing is set for June 9th. The evidence introduced at trial showed that Tasmazian operated a Medicare fraud scheme at OrthoMed Appliance, a DME supply company in West Hollywood. Tasmasian and his co-conspirator Eric McTarian purchased OrthoMed from the previous owners and put the company in the name of a straw owner. The two then stole the personal identifying information of Medicare beneficiaries and doctors in the company's patient files and used that information to submit a large volume of fraudulent claims. During a three-month period in late 2010, they submitted more than $1.2 million in fraudulent claims to Medicare for services that were never prescribed by a physician and never provided to the patients. Eric McTarian, his alleged co-conspirator, still remains a fugitive. Tasmasian's prosecution is one of a steady stream of cases moving through the justice system that underscore the need to make DME fraud and abuse a high enforcement priority. Authorities advise to watch for companies billing for high-end products but delivering inferior ones, forging product prescriptions, and paying kickbacks to professionals authorized to prescribe DME. California has long been known as one of the epicenters of insurance fraud, medical fraud, and other organized crime. And now, California Attorney General Kamala Harris says California leads all states in the number of computer systems hacked, the number of victims of internet crimes, and the amount of financial losses suffered as a result of identity fraud. She says the state also is particularly vulnerable to thefts of intellectual property. The report is a wake-up call to any California businesses that maintain data on individuals, such as insurance companies that digitize claim files, and third-party administrators. Between 2009 and 2012, the number of intentional breaches of computer networks in the U.S. jumped by 280%, with California's share leading the nation. Many of these breaches have been tied to transnational criminal organizations operating from Russia, Ukraine, Romania, Israel, Egypt, China, Nigeria, and other places. Transnational criminal organizations are increasingly taking advantage of new communications technologies and the interconnectedness of the globalized world to further their trafficking activities in California. This creates new challenges for law enforcement. 
California's significant foreign trade activity and its border with Mexico also makes the state an easy target for international money laundering schemes. More than $30 billion is laundered through California's economy each year. Backpacks and duffel bags stuffed with cash have been seized more frequently since Mexico began its toughening of money laundering laws a few years ago. Seizures of bulk cash increased 40% in California, which now leads the nation in the number of currency seizures. Transnational criminal organizations are taking advantage of new communications technologies and social media to facilitate criminal activity, recruit new members, and intimidate or harass their rivals, even from inside prison walls. One year, over 15,000 cell phones were seized from inmates in California prisons. Drug cartels have formed alliances with California prison and street gangs to control trafficking routes, distribute drugs, and kidnap, extort, and kill as necessary to protect their criminal activities. And in regulatory news, the DWC announced the regulatory transition from the ICD-9 to the ICD-10 at the end of this year. Very few public comments were received about the proposed regulations despite the profound impact the transition will have. ICD-10 is not simply an upgrade of the current ICD-9 code. It is a total rewrite intended to provide better detail and data collection for physicians, hospitals, and payers. This detail comes at a price. The volume of codes increase fourfold over the current ICD-9 standard. This brings a real set of challenges for workers' comp administrators who are expected to quickly review these codes for appropriateness and relatedness on incoming bills. Time will be spent deciphering these 68,000 codes, which means less time spent getting injured workers back to work. ICD-10 will offer a much greater level of detail for companies ready to accept the additional data detail. ICD-10 will specify between right and left on bilateral body parts and make a distinction between acute and chronic treatments. This will increase the accuracy of the diagnoses and treatment, which will reduce costs by cutting down on unnecessary testing. More detailed data may lead to better preventative safety protocols as a result of identifying the specific source of an injury. This data is also helpful in forecasting or predicting trends in medicine. Medical technology and treatments are constantly evolving and improving and ICD-10 accommodates new breakthroughs and treatments. Injured body parts will be more definitive and treatments will be more concise. It will make it harder for a doctor to add a CPT code that is completely unrelated because the ICD-10 will be so very specific. Once the system is in full swing and everyone becomes more familiar with the codes, it may help cut down fraud and abuse. Whether you're a fan of ICD-10 or not, it's coming. There's no stopping it come this next October. Time will tell how this affects the workers' compensation industry. 
And in medical news, more than 12 million Americans report using prescription painkillers in 2010 without a prescription or just for the high. Nearly three out of four drug overdose deaths are now caused by prescription painkillers. More than 475,000 emergency room visits were directly linked to prescription painkiller misuse or abuse, roughly double the number five years ago. The global production of oxycodone in the United States increased from 2 tons in 1990 to 135 tons in 2009. Expert trace the rise of painkiller misuse in the U.S. to 1996. That's when the pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma introduced Oxycontin, a narcotic and derivative of opium. Experts describe Oxycontin as essentially a heroin pill. Purdue wanted a product that would be prescribed for common, moderately painful chronic conditions. At first, the medical community balked. Using opioids for chronic problems seemed too risky given the nature of the pill's highly addictive properties. But Purdue Pharma launched an aggressive marketing campaign arguing that it was a compassionate way to treat patients and, because of its extended release characteristics, would be less prone to abuse. But before long, numerous cases of addiction to the painkillers began to surface. In 2007, Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty in federal court to misleading doctors and the public about OxyContin's risks and paid a $600 million penalty. And once a person becomes addicted to painkillers, it isn't a long journey to heroin, itself a derivative of morphine developed in the late 1800s as a painkiller. A recent study found that of those who have tried heroin, about 80% had previously used painkillers without a prescription. From Los Angeles to Long Island, Chicago to New Orleans, parents and police are struggling with the rise in heroin use in suburban neighborhoods. The rise is being driven by a large supply of cheap heroin in purer concentrations that can be inhaled or smoked, which often removes the stigma associated with injecting it with a needle. Once hooked on pain pills, users look for doctors who will sell them prescription drugs and failing that turn desperately to the street where the price of prescription pills can be as high as $80 for a single pill. When that becomes too expensive, users often resort to the drug that produces the same kind of high, but is far cheaper, heroin. The latest rise in heroin abuse was made more visible by the recent overdose death of actor Philip Seymour Hoffman. But use of the drug has been growing steadily across many levels of society for at least the past five years. And unlike the heroin surge in the 1970s, the current use of opiates is far more concentrated among suburban and rural whites than among African American and Latino communities. The heroin that addicts, addicts used to shoot up was 2 or 3% pure. Today, the street purity of the drug can be as high as 80%. That potency helps explain both the drug's wide appeal and its new danger. The higher purity is also more likely to trigger an overdose for those who do inject it. 3D printing is now revolutionizing reconstructive surgeries. 
3D printing is a process of making a three-dimensional solid object of virtually any shape from a digital model. To perform a print, the machine reads the design from 3D printable file and lays down successive layers of liquid, powder, paper, or sheet material to build the model from a series of cross-sections. These layers, which correspond to the virtual cross-sections from the model, are joined or automatically fused to create the final shape. The primary advantage of this technique is its ability to create almost any shape or geometric feature. The 3D printing technology has applications in many fields such as architecture, construction, automotive manufacturing, aerospace, and many other fields. Several projects and companies are developing affordable 3D printers for home desktop use. And now the technology is making a foothold in dental and medical industries and biotechnology. Doctors in the Netherlands have for the first time successfully replaced most of a human skull with a 3D printed plastic one and likely saved a woman's life in the process. The 23-hour surgery took place at the University Medical Center, uh, Utrecht. The 22-year-old woman suffered from severe headaches due to a thickening of her skull. She slowly lost her vision, her motor coordination was suffering, and it was only a matter of time before other essential brain functions would have atrophied. In some brain operations, it's common for part of the skull to be temporarily removed to reduce pressure on the brain, then put back later or replaced by an artificial implant. But in this case, doctors inserted nearly an entire plastic skull that was manufactured with the help of Anatomics, an Australian medical device company that specializes in 3D printing. Prior to this device, Older implants created by hand in the operating theater used a cement and did not have a very good fit. 3D printing now ensures that components are an exact fit. This has major advantages not only cosmetically, but also because patients often have better brain function compared with the older method. Three months after surgery, the woman's pain was gone and she has fully regained her vision. She has gone back to work, and there are almost no traces that she had any surgery at all. In another success story, a British surgeon successfully implanted a 3D printed pelvis for a man who lost half his pelvis to bone cancer. It was the first transplant of its kind. The patient, who is in his 60s, suffered from a rare type of bone cancer that affected the entire right side of his pelvis. It would have been impossible to attach a standard implant because so much bone had to be removed. But the orthopedic surgeons took scans of the man's pelvis to make exact measurements of how much 3D printed bone needed to be produced. The scans were used to create a titanium 3D replacement by fusing layers of titanium together and then coating it with a mineral that would allow the remaining bone cells to attach. After the titanium pelvis was attached, the team added a standard hip replacement to complete the surgery. The man has been walking with a cane and remains happy with the results. A new Centers for Disease Control study says that any, on any given day, one in 25 hospitalized patients 
That is, 4% is battling an infection picked up in a hospital or other healthcare facility. That translates to more than 600,000 hospital patients infected each year while in the facility. About half of those infections were either linked to a device attached to the patient or occurred after a surgical procedure at the site of the surgery. An infection acquired in this manner for treatment of an industrial injury would become a new and costly compensable consequence injury. The good news is that the trend in magnitude seems to be going in the right direction with fewer infections estimated than in prior years. The new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine was based on an analysis of over 11,000 patients treated at 183 hospitals in 10 states. Pneumonia accounted for about 22% of the hospital-acquired infections. Another 22% were infections at the surgical site, and 17% were stomach or intestinal illnesses. Urinary tract and bloodstream infections ranked fourth and fifth, respectively. The most common bacterium responsible kills an estimated 14,000 people in the U.S. each year. It was detected in 12% of the hospital-acquired illnesses and was responsible for 71% of gastrointestinal infections in particular. To prevent infections, the National Patient Safety Foundation recommends patients wash their hands regularly and remind their doctors and nurses to do the same. Patients should also make sure both bandages and the skin around any catheters are kept clean and dry. And in financial news, rates and premiums for workers' compensation insurance are continuing to climb across the U.S., driven by factors including prolonged low interest rates and rising medical costs. Meanwhile, implementation of the Affordable Care Act and the potential expiration of the Terrorism Risk Insurance Program Reauthorization Act are two other factors that could make a significant impact on the workers' compensation market as 2014 unfolds. As the U.S. unemployment rate shows modest declines and wages are slowly increasing, it's no surprise that workers' compensation premiums are continuing to show growth. Over the last eight years, the workers' compensation market suffered through a 27% decline in premium before rebounding with growth in the past three years. There was a 10% increase in 2010 to more than $39 billion in premium. A Wells Fargo 2014 insurance market outlook forecasts continued rate increases for the first three quarters of this year, along with continued reduction in the combined loss ratio. The report includes several other predictions, such as continued movement away from guaranteed cost programs into higher deductible programs, either because they are a more appealing alternative or a necessity. One final prediction in the report says the continued use of predictive modeling analysis to improve risk selection, proper retention levels, and pricing will result in more conservative underwriting by the insurers. Healthcare reform hasn't made a significant impact on the U.S. workers' comp market to date, but that isn't expected to be the case for much longer. The industry is watching uh, its access to primary care physicians. 
Experts are predicting that access to primary care may be a problem. It could be indeed a perfect storm. It is conceivable that many PCPs who are already in short supply will elect to stop treating workers' comp cases, which can be more challenging to deal with. This would obviously be a negative development for the work comp market. And in other news, Central Basin Municipal Water District is a public agency that purchases imported water from the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California and wholesales the imported water to cities, municipal water companies, investor-owned utilities, and private companies in Southeast Los Angeles County. There are 24 cities in Central Basin's service area. The company is headquartered in Commerce, California. The politically explosive district appears to be within a few days of financial Armageddon after the agency was officially put on notice that its public insurance carrier is dropping them as a client. The Association of California Water Agencies and the Joint Powers Insurance Authority officially informed Central Basin officials that their insurance coverage has been discontinued, citing the workings of a dysfunctional board of directors. The district claims it is now proactively reviewing all its available insurance options and alternative providers in light of a pending decision regarding the district's future relationship with the insurance provider. During the past year, dozens of investigative reports documented deep legal problems allegedly caused by directors that could be reason for the JPIA dropping the agency. In one sordid sexual harassment complaint lodged by a female employee against a director, the alleged victim could be handed a high seven-figure settlement. Other females may be in the process of coming forward to file additional cases of sexual harassment activities against one of the directors. And another director is filing a highly controversial whistleblower lawsuit against her own agency. Another formal, former Central Basin District executive filed a complaint alleging wrongful termination, retaliation, and harassment during his short tenure at the agency. The agency is also being investigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, the Internal Revenue Service, and the United States Attorney's Office in connection with a case involving current State Senator Ronald Calderon and former Assemblyman Thomas Calderon. That is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.